Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute in Exile. Those of you who are regular attendees will be pleased to know we will be back in the Hayek Auditorium by the end of this month. And I, should, I shouldn't say back in the Hayek Auditorium. We will be in the all-new Hayek Auditorium in a different place. Uh, with new and expanded seating capacity in two ways. There will be more seats, and uh, it appears the seats are larger to accommodate America's growing population. Uh, so it's, it's going to be a beautiful place, um, and we won't have to put a screen on the stage. It's going to have a fabulous TV operation, probably too complicated for law professors to operate, but we'll have to, uh, we'll have to do that for them. Um, I'm pleased to see you all here when you could be standing in line to get an iPad. Um, so we're, we're delighted you preferred this. And I want to welcome Dale Carpenter here. Dale Carpenter has long been respected as a professor and writer on constitutional issues. He has written for legal journals ranging from the Michigan Law Review to the Cato Supreme Court Review. But with this book, he reveals himself as something more. He's not just a good legal analyst. He's a great investigative reporter and a great writer. And I've read a good bit of the book, and the new book reminds me of last month's HBO documentary, The Loving Story, which presented some classic interviews with plaintiffs and lawyers in the 1967 Loving v. Virginia case that overturned laws against interracial marriage. Dale also interviewed a lot of lawyers and plaintiffs for this book. The difference is that there weren't many mysteries about the Lovings and their marriage, but it turns out that there were a lot of mysteries about just what went on in the Houston apartment that sparked the Lawrence v. Texas case. To me, as a libertarian, both of these cases are about liberty and about the limits of government power over individuals. Randy Barnett analyzed the court's Lawrence decision in the Cato Supreme Court Review as Justice Kennedy's libertarian revolution. I think that was a sweeping interpretation that Dale disagrees with, but uh, that's the one we published in our annual review of the Supreme Court. And, of course, the Lawrence decision is especially popular around the Cato Institute because the court's decision drew on Cato's amicus brief, a point not mentioned in this otherwise magnificent book. <laughs> I will introduce our commenter in a few minutes, but for right now, let me say that Dale Carpenter is the Earl R. Larson Professor of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Law at the University of Minnesota. He has a BA degree from Yale and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School, where he was editor-in-chief of the University of Chicago Law Review. He clerked for Judge Edith Jones of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He's the author, among many other things, of a Cato Institute study, The Federal Marriage Amendment, Unnecessary, Anti-Federalist, and Anti-Democratic. And as of this week, he is the author of Flagrant Conduct, The Story of Lawrence v. Texas. Some of you may have seen the long and wonderful review of the book in The New Yorker this week. Uh, I understand that this weekend and already online, it's being reviewed in the New York Review of Books and the New York Times Book Review, and I assume many more reviews to come. Please welcome Professor Dale Carpenter. Thank you, David, um, and to the Cato Institute for having me here today. 
Um, it is a pleasure uh, to come and speak, especially to this group, about a case that I think represents one of the most important decisions on individual rights and the appropriate limits of government in the past half century on the Supreme Court. Um, I am Dale Carpenter. I teach at the University of Minnesota Law School in the areas of constitutional law, the First Amendment, and um, sexual orientation and the law. I also should tell you at the outset that I uh, co-wrote with Eric Jaffe, who is a former clerk for Justice Thomas, an amicus brief um, for Lawrence and Garner in Lawrence versus Texas. And as David mentioned, uh, the Cato brief was an, an incredibly influential brief in uh, Justice Kennedy's uh, decision, deservedly so. Uh, Justice Kennedy's decision relied on many amicus briefs, in fact. Um, I think all of the amicus briefs, one in one point or another, except the one that I contributed uh, to, the, to the opinion, but it was um, uh, definitely striking for the amount to which it relied on these, um, uh, on these briefs, not just from the Lambda legal attorneys, but from outside sources as well. That was itself part of a deliberate strategy on the part of Lambda Legal, who led the way into the Supreme Court from the lower Texas courts to show a broad-based opposition and critique of laws like the so-called homosexual conduct law in Texas, which forbade specified sexual activities if they occurred between two people of the same sex. The decision that resulted from Lawrence versus Texas, from that litigation, is as close to a Brown versus Board of Education for gay men and lesbians as we, are, as we have had so far. Uh, certainly the most important decision yet, a landmark decision for the rights at least of gay men and lesbians. Yet very little, I think, is known about the actual background of the case and the events that led from a bedroom arrest or an apartment arrest to the Texas courts to the Supreme Court. And that is the story that this book tells. Over the next uh, 20 minutes or so, I can't recount every one of those stories. Uh, there isn't the time. And in addition, I want you to read and buy the book. Um, it is available um, right outside, and I'm happy to sign the books after all of this is over. So I, I hope um, that I can just tease you enough into buying this so you won't read all of these wonderful reviews and feel like that's a substitute for actually picking it up. There's, there's more in there. The, um, the Texas statute at issue was passed in 1973 by the Texas legislature. It was the end product of a process of revision over a period of 120 years in Texas, a process that paralleled changes in American law in general, such that the state moved from banning the crime not fit to be named, as uh, Sir William Blackstone once called it, a crime against nature, to a crime that specified certain kinds of sexual acts between certain people. By the time it reached its refined stage in 1973 in Texas, it forbade both oral and anal sex between two people of the same sex, but it allowed identical activity to occur between two people of the opposite sex. 
That same year, in Texas's comprehensive revision of its criminal code, the state saw fit to decriminalize adultery, to decriminalize seduction on promise of marriage, and even to decriminalize bestiality, which means that as of that year, Texas declared its public policy that it was permissible for a person to have sex with an animal, but not to have sex with another person to whom you had committed your life and for whom you were responsible. That statement by itself was a powerful one. And while the law was styled and titled a conduct law, a homosexual conduct law, I believe that the effect of that law and of similar sodomy laws around the country was to effectively criminalize not just conduct, but the very status of being a gay person in our society with consequences that suffused every area of the law, as I'll mention a bit later. Um, I came to write this book when I tried to write a law review article for the Michigan Law Review right after the decision came down and decided I needed to write a factual background section to the law review and realized when I read the decisions that there was no factual background available. If you look at the decisions of the courts, including the Supreme Court, you get at most a paragraph that says uh, Harris County police entered an apartment where they saw two men engaged in sex that violated the state sodomy law, so-called, took the men to jail. They challenged their arrest under the Constitution's Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses and ultimately succeeded in Justice Kennedy's opinion. And I thought there had to be something more to the case than that in the background. For one thing, I was trying to get tenure and I needed to write longer articles. <laughs> so I started calling around to my friends in Houston, whom I'd known since the 1990s when I lived in Houston, in fact lived there when these arrests occurred, and who I knew from my own political activity, my political involvement at the time, both in the Republican Party and in the gay civil rights movement. And um, I just assumed that the police had seen what they said they had seen, and that's the way I began my question with that assumption built in to one of these civil rights leaders who stopped me over the phone and said, now Dale, you're assuming that the police saw them having sex and that they were having sex. And I paused for a couple of seconds to let that sink in. And I said, well, of course I'm assuming that. That is the, what everyone believes about the case. And that was the basis for challenging the Texas homosexual conduct law and these arrests. And he responded, well, I think you need to do some more digging. So that got me thinking that there might be more to this case. How is it that police end up on the threshold to a bedroom and observe two people having sex? Didn't they announce their presence? Didn't they knock on the door? Wasn't there time to disengage before the police actually saw anything? These are the kinds of questions that had no answer and that I was trying to seek out. As I started digging around, I tended to get one of two kinds of answers from civil rights activists down in Houston and from lawyers who had represented Lawrence and Garner. One kind of answer said to me, 
yes, that's right, there is a lot more to this, and in fact, we believe they weren't having sex. And the other kind of answer, especially from the lawyers, was we don't talk about that. And of course, as soon as I heard that, I knew I had a story. And the question is how I was going to get it and whether I could fit it into a larger narrative about what made that fact important, why it might have mattered that the police could walk into the home of a private citizen and arrest the people found inside for doing nothing. So I interviewed uh, the police, three of the four police who were first on the scene. I ultimately was able to interview Lawrence and Garner themselves, although initially at least the lawyers would not let them answer questions about what they were doing inside the apartment. I interviewed activists who were close to the case. I interviewed law clerks, uh, people who were working for the judge whose uh, uh, court the case ended up in at the lowest level, the Justice of the Peace Court. I interviewed judges themselves. I interviewed the lawyers who crafted the constitutional arguments to get a sense of how they shaped their arguments, what sort of choices they made in deciding to emphasize certain arguments rather than others. I interviewed the prosecutor in Harris County who made decisions about what kinds of ways Texas would defend the law and what it was not willing to do in defending the law. And from all of that, I came to uh, a number of different conclusions, um, one of which is that I believe that Lawrence and Garner, in fact, probably were not having sex when the police walked into their apartment. Part of this is based on the sheer improbability of the story that the police tell, which I, uh, uh, which I relay in some detail in the book, uh, and which I could happily regale you with some other time. Um, Part of it is based on what the men themselves did shortly after the arrest, when they were taken to jail, should say dragged off to jail, um, and uh, pleaded not guilty in response to the charges against them. And then ultimately, a year ago, this April, um, John Lawrence finally insisted to his attorneys that he be allowed to speak about the full background of the case. He knew that he was ill, very ill, and he wanted to tell his side of the story. There had never been a trial in this case because the challengers had agreed to the version of the facts alleged by the police in a 70-word or so complaint. And I got to sit down with him last Good Friday in April, and he told me directly that the police barged in, that the men were either fully or partially clothed, that they were as much as 15 feet apart and were not doing anything. And I started to ask questions about um, why is it that the police would have done something like that? Well, one immediate answer is that this, can, this kind of thing could happen in any case, anytime the police are present in any home. They could come up with charges that do not, that, are, that aren't really based in fact uh, but there seemed to be a special reason why the police might have charged falsely in this case. And a number of those factors, I believe, were at work when they entered John Lawrence's partner, uh, apartment that night. Uh, one of them is that they were 
certainly angry and frustrated that they had been called to the apartment on a false report of a weapons disturbance in a very complicated uh, series of events that are also described in the book. But the second, and this is very clear from my interviews of the police officers and from uh, John Lawrence and Tyrone Garner themselves, they were, uh, their homophobia was aroused. Their very idea that not any particular act was illegal, but the status of being gay was illegal and allowed people to be targeted simply for being rather than for doing. The homosexual conduct law in Texas should have been called a homosexual status law. That was revealed, for example, in the fact that um, the Harris County Sheriff's Office, which is the department that um, these officers were part of, refused to have a non-discrimination policy and had no gay or openly gay sheriffs in the department. It refused to train officers in the way that it would do for other uh, groups that the police would occasionally encounter to say, when you encounter these people, you do not call them by anti-gay epithets. You treat them respectfully and with dignity. The Sheriff's Department refused to do that. When Anise Parker, whom I also interviewed and is now the mayor of Houston, Texas, the uh, first openly lesbian mayor of any large city in the entire country, when I interviewed her for the case, she said that back in the 90s she had conducted trainings for Houston Police Department officers. And in contrast to the Harris County Sheriff's Office, it was important for the Houston Police Department to actually learn about the communities they were policing and to try to minimize rather than to exacerbate tensions and hostility between the community and the law enforcement authorities. And she used to open up these training sessions for these fresh recruits in the Houston Police Department by asking them, how many of you believe that it is illegal to be gay in Texas? And every single one of these recruits ra raised their hands at most of these sessions. It had somehow seeped into them that this very status was illegal, that you didn't really, you could assume that some illegal conduct had occurred, write whatever you wanted to on an offense report and expect that it would be believed or indeed that it would never be challenged because of shame and because of stigma. So that is one important conclusion from uh, this book. Another um, part of the book, and this has gotten a bit less attention uh, so far at least in the reviews, but I think um, I, I would want to emphasize it uh, to this audience, is that there was a, of course, deliberate, very careful litigation strategy for presenting arguments to what is basically a conservative and incremental and pragmatic nine-justice court. The arguments for um, Lambda Legal <coughs> reflected the experience of that organization and of gay rights attorneys over a period of decades. The kinds of arguments that were uh, used reflected that learning and experience. And there were certainly specific constitutional doctrines that they relied on, but both of these doctrines, main doctrines, equal protection on the one hand and fundamental rights or due process on the other, were guided by an overall narrative that applied to both of the arguments. And that narrative was this to the court. 
in striking down the Texas sodomy law and the laws of the other 12 states that still have similar laws, you are not leading the country. You are following the country. The country is already, has already left these laws in, on the ash heap of history, and you're simply consolidating the feelings of the country as they currently exist. You don't have to strike out to declare anything very revolutionary or very new. And Lambda did this in a number of specific ways in its briefs that were quite convincing ultimately, obviously, to the justices, pointing out changes in the law and changes in our treatment of gay men and lesbians over time, including in the period since Bowers versus Hardwick in 1986, when a member of the court could say to a closeted gay clerk that he never knew a gay person. That was impossible by 2003 when every justice on the court had known and perhaps had had a clerk who was openly gay. That was the basic theme of the case. Follow the country, you don't lead the country. The strategy on the other side, the strategy on the side of Texas, was not to launch an anti-gay crusade. The Harris County District Attorney did not want to sink to the level of anti-gay epithets, it said in its briefing. It did not, for example, want to rely on really unsupportable arguments about the public health justification for anti-sodomy laws. The arguments that many of the amici made in their briefs supporting the state of Texas were, the prosecutor told me, basically embarrassing and silly and they really did not think they helped the side of Texas. But Texas's main theme was that laws regulating sexual conduct have an ancient historical lineage, and they reflect the values, the morals of the people as determined by their representatives in the state legislature. And morals-based legislation is by itself enough to justify a law, unless there is some special reason to distrust the law because, for example, it is aimed at persons based on their race or aimed at some real fundamental right of which they said the activity in this case could, did not partake. So their basic uh, stream, uh, theme was judicial restraint and history. Um, those themes came before the court in a very dramatic argument in March of 2003, which was filled with advocates, mostly in favor of gay rights, people who had worked their entire lives to remove things like Bowers versus Hardwick from the law because of all of the damage they believed that had been done by that decision and by these laws more generally. Um, it, w it represented by Paul Smith, who is an attorney here in Washington at the law firm Jenner and Block, and who was known previously really for his corporate work and not for gay rights work. He was as prepared as an advocate could be before the Supreme Court and was extraordinarily effective. I was there in the courtroom when the argument was held, and it was an, there was an audience there that was extraordinarily knowledgeable about all of the cases and the theories and the doctrines, and the language that was used. The audience was hearing the language at two and three different levels at once. It was hearing the double and triple entendre 
in the questions that the justices were asking and in the responses that Paul Smith was giving. It had a freight train intensity about it that was almost irresistible, even as Justice Scalia and as Chief Justice Rehnquist were trying to resist and point out flaws in the argument, Paul Smith had an immediate answer to almost every question that was asked of him. Contrast that with the uh, presentation by um, Chuck Rosenthal, who was the um, lead uh, prosecutor decided to argue the case in the Supreme Court. He had never argued, as best we can tell, an appeal. Never, needless to say, he had never argued in front of the Supreme Court. So um, my advice, if I have any that you take away from today's presentation, is that if you find yourself in a position where you might take a case to the Supreme Court, try not to make your appellate debut <laughs> in front of the nine justices on the court. It is a very, very difficult environment in which to do that. And um, you can see, and I've, it's, it's detailed in the book, you can see how he flailed around, could not answer questions. The, ju the justices basically began having a conversation among themselves, and he was just standing there observing the oral argument that he was supposed to be intimately involved in. The decision is what the decision was. My book is not a book about constitutional doctrine, so if you're looking for a close textual analysis of Justice Kennedy's opinion, or you're looking for predictions about what the court may do in some other case in the future, you really will not find them in this case. It was important enough for me to say what happened here, how it got to the Supreme Court, and what the Supreme Court decided, and to emphasize that Knowing what we now know about Lawrence versus Texas in no way diminishes or tarnishes the importance of this decision as a defense of individual rights and freedom against the power of the government. Instead, if I'm right about, the res about what happened in this case, the case was worse than we ever knew. It was not simply about a bad law or an unconstitutional intrusion on the private lives of citizens. It was about a perversion of the law, a corrupt enforcement of an unconstitutional law. It meant that gay men and lesbians could not, did not live by the same rules that the rest of us live. It's akin to having two different speeding limits for people. And that um, should be troubling to a constitutional republic that respects individual freedom. Um, I want to just show you a couple of pictures. Um, I'll go through them quickly, so you can get some kind of uh, flavor. Uh, this first picture, this first picture is John Lawrence when he joined the Navy in 1961 when he was 17 years old. These were not gay rights advocates. Um, he was not a gay rights advocate. Neither was Tyrone Garner, the person he was arrested with. Um, he was asked on a form in 1961 that you had to fill out when you joined the military. Uh, he was asked in, on this form, uh, are you a homosexual? This was pre-Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So back then they were asking. And he turned to the person standing next to him, a friend of his, and asked his friend, what's a homosexual? He didn't even know the answer. And so he said, well, I guess we're not one of those. In check, no. 
This is uh, Deputy uh, Joseph Quinn, who was the lead officer for the Harris County Sheriff's Department, who was the first to arrive on the scene at John Lawrence's house the night of the arrests. He was quickly followed by three other officers. When I did the interview with him, um, he spent a good afternoon with me, uh, regaling me with tales of his law enforcement activities and his impressions of what happened that night. And we actually drove to the apartment complex where the uh, men were arrested. Those are the stairs that the police walked up in a tactical stack, four of them, to go into the apartment and uh, on what they believed was looking for a gun. Um, and then those are the stairs where they dragged John Lawrence down out of his apartment when they arrested him after they'd figured out that he was gay based apparently on uh, some gay erotica that was in John Lawrence's apartment. That's the door, apartment 833. They knocked, announced themselves twice, entered, started searching the apartment, finally made their way to a back bedroom, which had the door open. There was no, nothing on in the house, no, no, no music, no television, no radio. Um, and they said that they nevertheless saw these men fully engaged in sex and with the guns drawn, the men continued to engage in sex. They turned on the lights to the room and the men continued to engage in sex. They told them to stop several times and the men would not stop. And finally, Deputy Quinn had to pry them apart. <laughs> These are the mug shots of John Lawrence and Tyrone Garner the night they were arrested. I believe for doing nothing. Well, I shouldn't say doing nothing. John Lawrence um, was pretty um, upset <laughs> that the police were there and he was calling them Gestapo and uh, jackbooted thugs and so on. Uh, Garner was considerably more cooperative. This is Nathan Broussard, who was a closeted gay clerk who worked in the courtroom where the judge, the initial judge, the justice of the peace, um, got the case. Uh, when the case arrived in, in this office, um, there, there isn't an automatic sodomy arrest alert that goes out to people in Houston. Uh, so it was not obvious that this case would ever end up being anything but a Class C misdemeanor punishable by a $200 fine. Um, <clears throat> and um, uh, he saw it, could not believe it, but based on who had reported the arrest, the, the Joseph Quinn that I showed you earlier, he uh, thought there must be something funny about this, but he didn't see anything constitutional. He wasn't a, a lawyer. And uh, he and his partner, who was a closeted Harris County Sheriff's deputy, went to a bar uh, the next night and happened to be gossiping with a bartender at the gay bar and mentioned that there had been this arrest. And the bartender, it turns out, was not just a bartender, but was a gay civil rights activist. And he said, light goes off, I think we have a constitutional case. There's uh, John Lawrence and uh, Mitchell Coutine. Mitchell Coutine on the left, he was the first attorney in Houston that was contacted even before Lambda got involved. This is uh, Ruth Harlow, little known in the Lawrence litigation, but she is the master strategist and tactician of this case. Brilliant uh, brief writer, thinker, um, 
I called her in the book, if, if, if Lawrence versus Texas is the Brown versus Board of Education, she's the Thurgood Marshall of the case, in my view. This is Chuck Rosenthal, who um, is the Texas DA who delivered his argument out in front in, in, in the court. This is uh, him um, speaking to the press on the steps of the Supreme Court um, right after the oral argument. The New York Times, Linda Greenhouse, called the uh, contest between these two men one of the greatest mismatches in the history of the Supreme Court. Um, he resigned in disgrace four years after this when it was discovered that he had sent racist and sexist emails from his office computer and that he was carrying on an affair with his secretary. Um, at the time, he was defending the traditions and morals of the people of Texas. And that's it. So I'll uh, turn it over to Chuck, and then I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Dale. Uh, there is a lot more in the book, so go ahead and get it. I really think it's interesting. I thought in that documentary on Loving, it was interesting to hear how they crafted their legal strategy, and you'll find that in the book, too, at least on the side of Lawrence and Garner. It's not clear there was a whole lot of strategy uh, on the side of the prosecution, but, it, but the discussion is in there. Uh, now we're going to have some comments from Charles Lane. He is an editorial writer and more recently a columnist for the Washington Post editorial page. In 2009, he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in editorial writing. Previously, he was the editor of the New Republic and the Supreme Court reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, Chuck went to Harvard and to Yale Law School. And he is also the author of a book on a Supreme Court case, The Day Freedom Died, The Colfax Massacre, The Supreme Court, and the Betrayal of Reconstruction. Please welcome Charles Lane. Thank you very much. Um, when Cato approached me to do this, I, I found myself wondering, well, why me? And uh, then I realized it's because um, I also wrote a book about a Supreme Court case uh, in which I tried to uh, uh, sort of rebuild the narrative of the story behind the story, and they wanted to give me an opportunity to plug it. Um, but uh, no, not exactly. Uh, but it does qualify me, I think, to say, first of all, uh, I've been where Dale has been. I've been trying to do that myself, and he does a magnificent job at something I know personally to be a great challenge. Um, Dale naturally is too modest to stand here before you and boast directly about his own book, so I'll do it for him. Uh, and just, I'd like to begin my comments by talking about it as, um, in those terms, sort of the, 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 the narrative uh, and the uh, uh, reportorial qualities of this book. I mean, honestly, uh, I can't believe he's a law professor because, uh, you know, I, it reads like something that somebody who does journalism for a living, in the good sense, uh, could have produced. Um, and what is especially impressive about this book and what I think gives it the authority that it has is that despite what is obviously sort of Dale's own very strong beliefs about the merits of the issues he's covering here, uh, that anger and that sense of outrage 
is, is carefully controlled all the way through the book. There's not a whole lot of rhetoric. There's not a whole lot of moralizing. He does a very good job of just sort of letting the issues and the facts and, uh, speak for themselves. And, and in no way do I mean that he's muting or sugarcoating anything, quite to the contrary. But I think in a, in a literary sense, really, that's a much more effective approach to a subject like this. And I think it really um, will be very effective with a very wide audience that may not be necessarily predisposed to agree with him. And I think that's a, a real tribute to his skills as a writer. Um, and a second sort of broad comment before I get into the book, as he was speaking uh, about the sort of the history in Texas of, in fact, just sort of making it illegal to be a homosexual, um, it occurred to me that that is by no means, um, after Lawrence versus Texas, an irrelevant issue. Uh, as many of you probably know, around the world today, particularly in Africa, there is an unfortunate trend in the direction away from the direction the Supreme Court took in Lawrence versus Texas. Uh, in fact, a number of countries seem to be moving in the direction of augmenting the penalties for being homosexual, uh, police crackdowns on homosexuals, uh, and the like are occurring all over the world today, and the Obama administration has uh, begun to speak out against that, uh, meaning that for our country it, as, a, as a kind of an actor in the world, this issue uh, by no means is over with just because of what the Supreme Court did. Um, so let's talk just a few, uh, a little bit more about what goes on in this book and, uh, and why uh, uh, it is so original uh, and so important. Um, you know, Dale uh, says, well, guess what? They weren't having sex, as if that is sort of just kind of an interesting little fact or discovery. But if you stop and think about it, um, this is um, a remarkable statement. Uh, we are used to the idea that um, truth and justice sort of go together. <laughs> truth, justice, and then the third one is the American way. Here we have a situation in which they didn't, really. Um, if the truthful facts of this case had been brought out immediately, which, as Dale points out, was the inclination of the defendants themselves. They wanted to plead not guilty, deny the charges, and were persuaded to plead no contest so that they could stipulate to this false charge as a means of getting a constitutional challenge going. Uh, it really does point to uh, a kind of interesting paradox about the way our system works. I mean, it, it's in a way not something Dale needed to go into, but it's hard to imagine, for example, a case like this occurring in Europe, where the inquisitorial system of justice would have promoted the establishment of an agreed-upon set of facts before anything, would have drawn out all the, the truth before, about the actual incident before it could have proceeded. Here in our adversarial system, strangely enough, you are allowed to go forward on a set of facts that may or may not be actual, but are sort of stipulated to. And that was a deliberate strategic choice. It was a hard choice, as Dale shows in the book, for the, for the men involved, for Lawrence and Garner, because it meant that they would sort of have to accept, for the sake of argument, 
and go f that they had done this thing and kind of go forward in the community as uh, gay men, which was at that time a risky thing to do uh, in their community. And so uh, the uh, ultimate uh, decision uh, to go forward on that basis was a courageous one by them, but also a kind of reminder that um, in, in a way the, the advocates supporting them in this case were willing to uh, pull, a, pull a bit of a trick on the system to achieve their objective. And so you ask yourself, or I ask myself reading the book, uh, can this be justified? Um, and I guess my answer, and I think one of the implications of Dale's narrative is, is yes, it can. And I'd sort of like to explain why I, I feel that way. You know, um, the, the people of Texas had their chances. <laughs> um, as Dale shows, there is a very important turning point in this story at the state court level. It's not only the fact, the case that the, the, the government officials in Texas were embarrassed to defend this law up at the Supreme Court. As soon as this thing got rolling, they were kind of embarrassed already at the beginning. Oh my God, you know, I don't know about these police recruits, but I, there were a lot of people who didn't even realize this law was on the books and were embarrassed that they were going to have to defend it even in the state court. And at the appellate, the intermediate appellate level, uh, a three-judge panel of Republican judges struck down the law under the state constitution. Now think about that for a minute. Here you have an opportunity. If the, if the district attorney had just said, okay, we lose, we're not going to appeal this any higher, uh, two judges in good standing with the Republican Party say this is a dumb law under the state constitution, we wouldn't be sitting here today. We wouldn't have the profound precedent that was set for the whole country in Lawrence. Um, but what happened, as Dale shows, is that as soon as that uh, decision came out, there, were, there was a huge uproar on the right of the Republican Party in Texas against those judges. And the Republicans uh, put a lot of pressure on Harris County to appeal it to the state Supreme Court, which uh, they did. And to be sure enough, the state Supreme Court, I think, or, or sorry, not the state Supreme Court, the en banc panel of the appeals court first, uh, by an overwhelming majority, upheld the statute. And the, the rest, as they say, is history. Um, so what we produce here in this case is not, is sort of a, a situation which I think Texas really gets kind of what it deserves here. Maybe, maybe not uh, by the fairest means, but certainly by perfectly legal means. Uh, this, I'm not implying at all that the system was violated legally. Um, but after all these years of, you know, uh, defending this really unconscionable law, I don't think that in the kind of cosmic sense an injustice was done, but quite to the contrary. But I do think one of the challenging things about reading this book, and I'd be interested, you know, it'll be interesting for each of you to see how you weigh that, is this strange paradox in which a little bit of untruth, not exactly a lie, but a little bit of untruth, uh, produces a lot of uh, justice at the end.
Um, I was covering the court in 2003 when both the oral argument and the decisions came down. And I remembered it very much as Dale did. Um, and one of the remarkable, I mean, he talks about poor Chuck Rosenthal. Uh, you know, there's, as soon as I saw Rosenthal's name on the brief, I said to myself, well, why isn't the SG of Texas on this brief? Where's the Attorney General of Texas? I mean, another indication that the state, it wasn't a politically wise thing for the state to be associated with. And that in itself is a very interesting comment on the general flow of the political uh, climate in this country toward uh, gay rights issues. Already then, even Texas Republicans were a little embarrassed to go to the Supreme Court and put their name on that brief. Um, and generally, one had the impression that uh, Texas was completely outgunned in this case. I mean, they had a handful of amicus briefs from groups no one had ever heard of before that were all very poorly drafted and unconvincing and extreme. And over here on the side of these poor guys from the apartment was the American Bar Association, I don't know, every famous person in the world, <laughs> um, you know, the whole respectable right-thinking community of the United States putting in amicus briefs and Paul Smith and this terrific legal team from Lambda all doing it pro bono. And it, it was um, quite different from, I think, the climate around Bowers versus Hardwick in 1986. And as, you know, it was clear, just on that basis, this law was gonna be struck down. You know, that the zeitgeist in America uh, had radically shifted since 19. 86. And I would argue, and parenthetically, I think it's even different today than it was in 2003. Um, but then the question remained, on what basis should the court actually strike this law down? There was no question, once, even when they took the case, right, uh, that they would. And here's where I think um, uh, it, it is useful to dwell for a moment on the opinions, although uh, Dale correctly says uh, that wasn't the, a doctrinal discussion, it was not the central concern of his book. There were, there were sort of two ways to win uh, this case. One was to convince the court of the argument they ultimately adopted, which was that this was a, a sort of a due process violation of a, a, a sort of a general uh, right everyone has to be kind of left alone in their sex life. Or a different argument, which I gather Dale actually espoused in his amicus, which was that this was a violation of the equal protection provision of the 14th Amendment because the Texas law strangely allowed people of two different sexes to do certain sexual acts. That was perfectly legal. In fact, people of different animal species could, uh, could do them. But people of the same sex could not. And in fact, there was just a double standard that disadvantaged homosexuals. And you could have struck down that law on that basis, and it would have been a more limited holding because there were several states that um, uh, did criminalize these acts for everybody, right? They kind of were equal opportunity 
punishers. And so there was no question of, of, of sort of arbitrary disparate treatment. And um, that was an important argument to raise because one of the members of the court uh, whose vote was thought to be up for grabs in the Lawrence case, Justice O'Connor, had been in the majority in Bowers. And she wasn't known to, to you know, switch, overrule herself from the past. So this kind of argument offered her an opportunity uh, to vote to strike down the law without repudiating the Bowers precedent. The grand prize, so to speak, in this case, was the overruling of Bowers. And it seems sort of an, a foregone conclusion now, but at the time, I think that was very much the biggest concern of the attorneys for Lawrence was, geez, you know, they just don't overrule themselves, right? And so, you know, Bowers is a horrible opinion with all this sort of uh, nasty language in it. But if we can come up with a way that strikes this statute down uh, that doesn't require them to overrule that, that's going to be to our advantage because the stare decisis uh, tendencies of the court are what they are. Well, I think they did win the grand prize in this case, um, and uh, Justice Kennedy delivered that opinion in a very emotional scene there in the courtroom, which is described in, uh, very eloquently in, in Dale's book. Um, but, uh, you know, I will start the controversy today by saying I wonder in hindsight if the equal protection argument wasn't, a, the, wasn't perhaps a, the right call for the court, number one, and number two, maybe the more going forward, the sort of the more effective one. I think um, Justice Scalia, at, in dissent in this case, wrote what has to be one of the ugliest Supreme Court opinions I've ever read. Um, you know, a likening homosexuality to all these sort of other horrible things that, you know, he wanted the states to remain free to, to ban, sort of thundering about this being the equivalent of a decree of gay marriage and so forth and so on. Whereas Justice Kennedy's opinion is full of a lot of very sort of warm and beautiful language adopted basically, adopting basically the, the sort of view of the case of the advocates, namely that what we're trying to protect here is not some sort of abnormal sexual behavior, but the kind of thing people in relationships do. And I think that was a, a key strategic move that they made, and he was won over by that, and there's a lot of languages and opinion. But honestly, legally, it is um, a pretty loose, loosely reasoned opinion. Um, and so I guess the way I look at it is, is Scalia's opinion is abominable, but it actually, if you, if you look at some of his reasoning, He's got his points. There is, the, the, this case does sort of open the door to a lot of expansive reading of the, equal, of the due process clause and liberty. I know that's popular here at Cato. Uh, and whereas Kennedy's opinion is very admirable in its conclusions, but is kind of vulnerable to that very attack legally. Uh, whereas Justice O'Connor, and, and it, wasn't a, it was not a slam dunk, she wrote a concurring opinion concurring in the judgment and essentially adopting a version of Dale's equal protection argument, saying, you know, in effect, yes, the state can legislate morality. It just has to do it fairly. I mean, one of the problems with Justice Kennedy's view of the case, in my view, is it's very, very close to saying you can't legislate morality. 
And I think that does kind of open a little bit of a can of worms, right? Um, but Justice O'Connor's view essentially is, yeah, the states can legislate morality. They just can't discriminate among different kinds of people when they do that. So if you want to you ban sodomy, go ahead, but just ban it for everyone. Now, I think the uh, best argument against that would be some version of uh, Dale's view that that's kind of unrealistic in the real world, that if you gave the states the authority uh, to enforce such a rule um, about private consensual conduct, they would, they would do it in a discriminatory manner in the real world. But nevertheless, I think that's an open question. Um, I think the, the, the note I'll close on is just a reminder about the contemporary relevance of this book. Um, because of the expansive way in which Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion, uh, he did open the door to some of the legal challenges uh, in favor of gay marriage that are going on in the federal courts right now, uh, particularly in California. And um, that game is far from over. Uh, there will be also uh, uh, challenges rooted in Lawrence uh, to DOMA. Uh, there have been some against the Don't Ask, Don't Tell statute already. And we're now playing out, really, in this very period, the consequences of this decision. Um, at the same time, we have a lot of activity in the states on the gay marriage issue. Again, in, in, it's hard to imagine, you know, Washington's legislature has approved it, Maryland's, hard to imagine that those developments would have occurred if there had been a contrary result in Lawrence versus Texas. Because, you know, notwithstanding my quibbles about the outcome, I think this case established a very powerful uh, kind of uh, and high-level endorsement of the kind of the official culture of a new view of gays and lesbians. Uh, the old Bowers versus Hardwick mindset was trampled into the dust and put away forever, at least as far as the Supreme Court was concerned. And this decision was a big part of a process that is still going on of making it no longer respectable to hold a kind of old-fashioned Texas discriminatory view of gay men and lesbians. And in that sense, its true importance really may be as a, as a kind of cultural development, as a kind of uh, milestone in the, atti the, the attitudinal development of the United States, even more than legally. All the more reason to read this book uh, because what you'll find there is uh, a really rich and nuanced uh, discussion of how our culture is evolving and you know, the unfinished business that lies ahead. Thank you.